Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Laurie, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Would you like to, I guess, reintroduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. I'm the author of several books, most recently Questioning the COVID Company Line, Critical Thinking in Historical Times. Um, before that, a couple of books, anti-war books. One is called We Kill Because We Can, From Soldiering to Assassination in the Drone Age, and it's a wide-ranging critique of the use of lethal drones to assassinate people um, under the pretext of a war. Um, and another war book I published is called War and Delusion, a critical examination, which criticizes the centuries long just war paradigm, which has been used, used to galvanize support for wars um, over and over again. And I argue that just war theory is actually more of a rhetorical device or piece of propaganda than an actual tool for determining whether or not you should go to war. So author, writer, that kind of thing. <laughs> you, you do a lot, but uh, we're here to talk about your new book uh, uh, the, about the COVID company line, which right from this point on, this is not no longer going to be on YouTube because we can't talk about anything COVID related if it doesn't agree with the official narrative or anything. But what was your pandemic experience like? Like, how'd you come to write this book? Because I mean, before it was not the favorable opinion to have any dissent about the COVID or anything like that. You had to do exactly what they told you and get your shot. And now I'm starting to see more people dissenting now. I don't know if it's because there's certain platforms like X that is now allowing all this discussion to pop up there. But I did the, you know, the questioning, the what people would call conspiracy thinking, which I just called critical thinking. I invited vaccine lawyers on my show and talked to two of them that had completely different views. One that was pro mandates aren't against your freedoms. And the other one that goes, no, I'm representing clients that are in a wheelchair right now and they need a platform to speak and YouTube will not allow them to talk about their issues. And that's when YouTube changed their guidelines, but you'll get labeled an anti-vaxxer if I want to go interview these people, which is like, I want to help these people out and hear their story and get a full experience, not just one-sided information. Yeah, well, my own pandemic experience is truly unique, I can say, because I was in January and February and March, and then all the way through, it ended up being till July in Austria. So I was initially in the mountains of Austria, and I was helping some friends out who were moving to Spain. And in February, late February, they came back to move some of their pets and possessions to Spain because they had found a house. And when they came back to visit me, they were really, really sick. So they had what appeared to be a very, very uh, severe bout of the flu. And they were so sick that they were supposed to be coming back for four days, but they ended up staying for 11 days um, because they, they were too sick to drive back to Spain. So, so of course, we were sharing a house, sharing the kitchen um, while they were there. And I naturally contracted what they had, which turned out to be COVID-19. So uh, the reason why they were so sick is because it wasn't just an ordinary flu. It was this much um, more serious virus, uh, the the coronavirus that we all <laughs> know and fear at this point. So, so I was very sick, but I was in the mountains. Um, so I was in their house and right after they left to go back to Spain with half of their house um, possessions, all of the European borders were slammed shut. 
And so at that point they were in Spain and I was in Austria and I had a couple of their dogs that I was taking care of while, because you can't transport more than like four animals at a time. So this is part of the reason why they were, they were doing their move in two parts, but, but the, the European um, governments had all closed all of the borders. So they could no longer drive back um, to Austria and I could not go to them. So they asked me if I would just, if I would mind staying in the house for the rest of the spring. So I did because all of my other plans had been canceled. All of my travel plans, um, I had been planning to go to Southeast Asia and Australia and all these things, Japan, and they, it was all canceled. So I said, yeah, I'm not gonna just leave your animals in the middle of the forest, you all alone. So I just stayed there and I was very sick with uh, the virus, which they gave to me uh, for about six weeks. Um, it was pretty bad. I mean, I had a really bad cough. They left me a bottle of codeine cough syrup that I would use like every other night. I didn't want to get addicted, but you know, I, I had a, a, a severe enough cough that it made it difficult to sleep sometimes. But after six weeks, I eventually, I eventually shook it. So it was a very severe virus. It was much stronger than any flu I'd ever had. And in the midst of all this, it, it emerged that there was this COVID virus. Okay, so it was in Italy, which is not too far from Austria actually. Um, but I was in the mountains, so as this whole thing unfolded, Trump closed the borders, and that's what precipitated the closure of all the borders in all the other countries. And so um, at that point, I was in Austria, uh, and I was very isolated. So I definitely didn't infect anyone. I was in the middle of the mountains, and um, by the time I got, got better, uh, they had finally found someone who had the the proper paperwork to be able to move the rest of their stuff. So that was the end of May. And so I was in Austria. I had already cleared with the embassy and the consulate that I could just stay until I needed, you know, until it was possible, you know, feasibly to leave. So I decided that since I was in the country, I would just travel around Austria. So that's what I did during the month of June. And I was supposed to, so I went to Salzburg, Innsbruck, Grass and Vienna, and I was supposed to leave on July 1st, but my flight was canceled. So then I had to stay in Vienna for another three weeks, which turned out to be fabulous because everything was open, but there were no tourists. So I was basically the only tourist <laughs> in Vienna. So I would go to a museum and there would be like hardly anyone there. You know, there were no groups, there were no buses, there were no tours, um, you know, tour groups. So it was kind of an ideal summer in Austria for me, you know, they, a unique, that's what I, I mean when I say I had a totally unique experience because no one ever gets to go to Austria, you know, in the summer and have no other tourists be there. But that's what happened for, for me. Eventually I went to the UK and um, ultimately on November 16th, 2020, I flew back. And that was because the prime minister of the UK had issued a nationwide lockdown, which made it illegal for me to go anywhere. So I couldn't go from London to um, anywhere in Wales or Scotland or anything. And he also closed all the hotels. It just became too difficult to do anything. So I went back to the US at that point. Now, are you concerned when they went into lockdowns or did you not care as much because it was the UK and you were going to be heading back to the States? I wasn't concerned at all because I had been in Austria and it really, in June and July, everything seemed really normal. So the, the height of the crisis from my view at that point in history was, you know, March of 2020. And it just looked like it was just going to end. 
I just thought it was just about over. But then what happened is they implemented this really robust testing apparatus basically all over the world. And then suddenly all everyone was becoming hysterical because of the case numbers and the case surges as they called them. And uh, as a result of this, this testing mechanism that was implemented, the governments became stricter and stricter and kept imposing lockdowns based on the case, quote unquote, case surges. So, so it was, to me, it was baffling because I didn't really understand why things were getting worse rather than better. <laughs> so um, it was baffling to me. The, the, I wasn't afraid of COVID at that point. I'd already survived. So I knew I had the antibodies and the T cells I needed. You know, that's what, that's what it means when you recover from a virus that you have, you have it's natural immunity. Yeah, exactly. It's natural immunity. So I knew I had natural immunity. So I was not at all afraid of either contracting or transmitting the virus at that point because I was completely recovered from it. I knew what it was. I had I had lived through it in the spring and I wasn't at all afraid of it because I had already recovered. So when you like when were you skeptical when they were doing lockdowns in the usa like when they were in the united states like for me as soon as they even mentioned that we're gonna have to go on lockdowns i mean i'm sure you didn't buy the two weeks to slow the spread nonsense but a lot of people did and when they said that i just went is this not against our constitutional rights and then friends of mine family members of mine go what are you talking about like i was the nut job for even suggesting that it was against our constitutional rights i was like look i get it to help other people that's what they're pitching it as and they really make you feel like shit about it but i go this is like we we're able to go outside we're able to go see family members if we want to go do that they have no right to lock us in our house this is one of the things that was given to us when the founding of this country and that was that discussion was not being had amongst people that it should have been and you get labeled a conspiracy theorist for even suggesting something of that sort that's right and initially i think that people were just so frightened by the television coverage that they assumed that that it was similar to the black plague and that they had to do whatever the authorities said so um everyone adopted this this stance of submission because they were so afraid. So they didn't know what this thing was, but they knew that if it was bad enough for the governments to be closing the borders, it meant that they were really in danger. So I mentioned this in my book. I mean, I think people really at that point thought that they were going to see wheelbarrows rolling through the streets, picking up corpses, because that's our image of a, of a sort of plague. And that's how it was depicted. And when people would turn on their televisions, they'd see the death ticker tapes telling you how many people died. And there was never any effort to put those numbers into context to compare, for example, how many seniors ordinarily die during flu season every year. It's actually a lot. So, so there was never any effort to put the death tolls in into context. And there was never any serious effort by any of the people on television to look closely at the statistical data, which we had early on. We knew early on that it really, it was extremely dangerous for people above 70 years old or even 80 years old. Um, but people assumed that because the government measures were so stringent and so draconian that it had to be much more dangerous than it really was. And so this fed the fear. And then as 
because people were were fearful, they were actually goading the government on to have even stricter rules and regulations. So it was it was this sort of snowballing effect where the government would implement a measure, and then the people were so afraid that they would say, "No, more, more. We need to have, you know, mask mandates. We need everywhere. You 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 need to close the beaches. You know, really crazy stuff." And so it just got worse and worse. And then I think that I do believe that. Some factors entered into this that were wholly financial in nature. So they wanted to test these mRNA vaccines on the largest group of people possible. And the way to do that was to convince people that there was no way out of the pandemic but the vaccine. And so to get to that point, they had to be convinced that there were, you know, no alternative treatments available and that the lockdowns were not working. So we had to have the lockdowns and then the lockdowns got worse and, you know, stronger and stronger. And then eventually it looked like the vaccines were about to be released and people were relieved because they thought, oh, good, this is how we get out of the pandemic. Everyone stand in line and get your shot, and then we will we will be able to put this behind us. And this is how this is what fueled this whole idea that people who refused to get the shot were anti-vaxxers and they or were Trumpers. enemies of society. They were Trumpers, and they were irresponsible. They were immoral and ignorant. You know, there are a whole complex of negative things. And this is because they people had been propagandized to believe that the vaccine was the answer and that it was going to immediately call a halt to this virus. So you would see people like Rachel Maddow on TV saying, you know, the virus stops in the vaccinated person. That's where it ends. You know, so the it was widely promoted this idea that the vaccine was a vaccine in the traditional sense and in that it would call a halt to transmission and infection. That's what Biden well, said and that's what Fauci said. And they they've gone back on it and said it now that they've never said that it didn't get you infected or didn't stop the spread of COVID. I was like, you did on television. You some said. of them did. Some of them did and some of them didn't. Interestingly enough, the CEOs of the pharma firms themselves, Albert Bourla, the CEO of Pfizer and Stefan Bansell of Moderna, they were always very cagey from the very beginning, even in December 2020, that when people asked them, you know, are these shots going to tr- stop transmission? They would say things like, oh, that's something we need to look into. <laughs> so, um, but other people such as Fauci and all of the pundits, I mean, they all uh, completely were all in on this idea that you have to get the shot. This is the only way out of the pandemic. And, and people believed them. And so then they started pressuring family and friends and coworkers and businesses started requiring injections, even when the government hadn't mandated them yet. And then the government issued the mandate and that caused more businesses to um, insist on the uh, you know, obedience of their employees. And it just went on and on. So it got it got worse and worse, I think more and more emotional because the pandemic didn't end, the virus didn't go away. And so what, what came to be was this blame game where the government officials would blame the people. They would say, you didn't do what we told you to do. And that's why we still have a pandemic. So this is a quote unquote, pandemic of the unvaccinated is what they were saying at, at one point. And, um, this caused this incredible Manichaean divide between people. So there were the, the the people who did what they were told to do, and then there were the evil anti-vaxxers. That's, that's how everyone who didn't comply 
was labeled and um, characterized as though they hated all of science and they hated all vaccines and they would never take a vaccine when in fact it was a complete misrepresentation of the of the hesitancy to try this particular experimental elixir. So a lot of people who didn't want to get the vaccine had already recovered from COVID. So I, I'm an example of that. I wasn't about to get the vaccine because I had already recovered from COVID. So first, I knew that I could survive it because I had already survived it. And second, I knew that I had to have developed T cells and antibodies in order to rid my body of it. Otherwise, I would still be sick or I would have died. So it was completely illogical for me to take an experimental vaccine for a disease which I had already survived. It made no sense whatsoever. And a lot of people were in my situation. So that's why they were not going in for their vaccine because it made no sense. You know, if you understand how vaccines work because all vaccines do is provoke your own immune system to produce T cells and antibodies. So if your body has already done that, you don't need to do it again. And so <clears throat> all you're doing is you're, if you get this experimental vaccine, you're subjecting yourself to, to the, the risk of adverse effects and you're not getting any benef benefit because it's not doing anything that your body hasn't already done. I, uh, I want to ask when the shots first came out of me, were you, did you get it? Did you get vaccinated at all? Did you get one shot or anything like that? No, or you no shots, no shots. Huh? Yeah. There was no reason for me to do that. That's what, see, that's, I had that stance too around episode 400 and probably to 700, you'll see I'm talking to a bunch of people, different subjects and things of that sort. But then the COVID topic gets brought up because it's on everybody's mind and I don't have a structured show. It's conversation. So typically that's going to get drawn out of you. And I, people would ask, so like, are you going to get your shot when the vaccines come? Like they would be hopeful kind of for the vaccines. I was like, no, because I got COVID. Like, you know, like I don't need to. I trust my, I don't even take Tylenol. There's no fucking way I'm getting a shot if I've gotten over it already. And they would just kind of look at you like, but you should still get it. And then I started to notice this crazy trend of people taking photos of themselves in the midst of them getting a shot with the little Band-Aid on their arm. And it became major virtue a, signaling. Yeah, yeah virtue signaling was checkbox. rampant. It was it became rampant. Also, people would put in their profile the, a picture of themselves with their mask on and they would have their shot and everything. And they would have a little label that said, I got vaccinated. And so you were supposed to be this virtuous, moral, good person if you wore a mask and got your shot. And anyone who deviated from that line um, was considered an enemy and, and um, you know, people stopped talking to people for this and <laughs> stopped associated with associating with people who were quote unquote anti-vaxxers. But this was a major, uh, you know, it, it was a major job of discreditation um, that was that was undertaken in order to maximize vaccine compliance. So basically, they, there was a lot of social pressure put on people. And I think we're okay. And um, it just became worse and worse as time went on. And the, the most frustrating part of it was that the people who were doing this mostly had no understanding of science. They didn't understand how vaccines worked and they had put all their trust in Anthony Fauci and company. And as a result, they would just parrot whatever he said and also the government leaders. So when Biden said, we're going to protect unvaccinated worker, sorry, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated workers. I mean, if you think about that, that's 
a self-contradictory statement. Why would a vaccinated person need to be protected from an unvaccinated person? It makes absolutely no sense. It's like saying two plus two equals five. And yet people were going around parroting this because the president had said it. Um, so, Well, in your book, you say it pretty good. You have it written in there, it's science, and then you put a TM above it. Because, I mean, you really got to look at this. And I think it, with the amount of information and access to the internet, especially when people are on lockdown, they had so many articles coming out that didn't make sense. The very first ones I was coming across were that smokers were less likely going to get COVID because of the fact that they had uh, nicotine carcinogens or whatever coating their lungs that was stopping COVID from sticking to it. And then the next articles talked about how actually smoking makes you more susceptible. That one made a little bit more sense to me. But then they started saying CBD gummies could be able to help prevent COVID. Those were art real articles that were coming out. People wearing two masks, things of this sort that started going out there where I go, if you really didn't know anything about vaccinations, didn't know anything about the sciencey stuff that went behind this, you can, I mean, bleach, all that type of stuff was being thrown around. And obviously some people could have used their common sense of like this, but when they come across an article that's funded by the WHO or whatever, and it's talking about using this and only specifically this, then everyone's just going to listen to that, which was a problem with business interest funding research studies. There were a bunch of studies funded for Pfizer, but there weren't any that were looking into ivermectin and other drugs. And in my opinion, if it's fighting a pandemic and you really care about people, you use anything that you possibly can just to make sure that, if hey, if there's ivermectin, give it a try. I mean, maybe if that works, if people are saying it works, we should test it, right? That makes a lot of sense. And that's where I got into fights with skeptics on my show, like Michael Shermer and Lee McIntyre, who wrote books about how to stop misinformation. They looked at me like I was crazy when I was just saying, if I took a D supplement or something to get over COVID, why would you yell at me for getting over COVID because I didn't take a vaccine? Yeah, no, exactly. No, people became very irrational and very emotional over this, and they became more and more dug in to their positions. So the more they, the more they stuck with their position, the less able they were able to let it go. And uh, to your point about why wouldn't you try alternative therapies, there's actually a reason in U.S. law for that, and that is in order to get emergency use authorization, one of the requirements is there can be no, no available alternative medications. So basically they had to, they had to, in order to, to get, in order to secure emergency use authorization for the experimental vaccines, they had to claim that there were no alternatives whatsoever. So that's why suddenly in the United States, it, you know, it became, I think, illegal even to, to prescribe these things. Like pe doctors were not, prescriptions were not filled for these things. When people tried to get these alternative um, medications, uh, they were told, no, you can't do that. You know, the FDA sent out this tweet saying, um, you are not a horse, you are not a cow stop it y'all or something it was very toddler-esque but anyway that was the fda you know the food and drug administration you know completely captured by the pharmaceutical industry because what they're doing there is they're saying you are not allowed to take anything but these patented vaccines that's it even though in in many other countries in the world they were trying alternative therapies and you know there's some reason for believing that the relatively good outcomes in Africa have to do have to do with the fact that people regularly do take ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine there for other reasons, but because it's already in their system, um, they were able to fend off the virus. We don't know all the details yet. I mean, people will be writing papers about this 
for decades to come. And so it's hard to crunch, it's hard to crunch the data because there are so many different variables, you know. So in Africa, they had less robust testing, for example, and it's unclear, you know, exactly why there was such a success story, but it, it will emerge in the fullness of time, as they say. Where were you going for your information during the pandemic? I largely stayed off the internet. Um, surprisingly, until we opened back up and everything like that, I kind of just observed with my eyes the the madness that was going on. And, and when I say that, I mean, when you see someone jogging and you're on a path and you're not wearing a mask because you don't need to wear masks outside and a person happens to be like maybe across the street from you and they're screaming at you to put your fucking mask on and they have this look in their eyes like they're a crazy person that's like that like looks like like it's, it's like if you ever see a homeless person walking in the park and right. they're like and screaming they yeah. have something in their eyes where it's like they look like they're on a mission but what do they got? What do they got to do? That's what these people looked like that would scream at you, telling you you're killing people and be foaming at the mouth where I, me observing that I just started to notice like and I'm even surprised with the media. How did every like we talk about media manipulation, we talk about the media is captured. That's a big thing. I think a lot of people are aware of that. And it's a stereotype, too, that the media is just garbage. It's all garbage anyway. But then you see what they all did. Every single one of them. Horse pace, horse pace, horse pace. All attack Joe Rogan. They even put a filter on his face to make him look more sick in his videos after he had already beaten COVID. So to me, I was just like, wow, this is really insane. And I hope people do not forget what is going on right here. But most people do when they move on to the next thing. Yeah, that's that's true, unfortunately. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people want to forget what happened because in their heart of hearts, they may know that they acted a little bit um, insane. It was a kind of group, it was really a kind of group psychosis. I mean, honestly, well, not everyone. Some people are completely self-deluded and they're still going full speed ahead with the March 2020 line. But um, people who are relatively intelligent and relatively well-read and you know, have observed that in fact, deaths increased after the vaccine rollout rather than decreased, you know, the, the skeptical causes do eventually emerge in their minds. And they're not going to hold on forever to this belief that the vaccine was supposedly a panacea, because obviously it wasn't. We now know that the virus uh, mutates very rapidly. And each new booster is is a new experiment because they are trying to guess what the new properties of the new variant will be before it actually exists. Um, and you don't even know, you know, by the time the the boosters roll out, that particular variant that it was built against uh, may already have moved on. You know, so. But to answer your question, I decided in the spring of 2020 not to watch television because it was just fear-mongering. It was just constant, these death ticker tapes on the television and everyone acting like doom and gloom and we're all going to die. <laughs> so it was so incredibly hyperbolic and hysterical that I decided I just, I, I don't watch TV anyway, but I specifically decided because of the pandemic that I wasn't going to watch any of this death mongering. And so I didn't watch it. So I, so the information I got also like you, um, derived a lot from personal observation, just noticing things like in, in Austria, they had those, those stickers all over the floor. You know, you have, you're supposed to do social distancing and stay this far apart and, you're supposed to, um, they didn't have a mask mandate, but they did have the stickers everywhere. So if you are if you went into a mall, there would be stickers. You're supposed to be standing this number of meters apart from other people. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I noticed was when I would get on escalators, 
people would still just line up right behind me. And so it was really interesting because I, I realized no one was actually afraid of it. No one in Austria at that point, in Vienna, for example, no one was really afraid of it at all. So there was a mask mandate still on public transportation. But even in that case, people would get onto public transport with no mask. And then they'd take a few minutes finding their mask in their bag and eventually put it on. And then I noticed that some people would take it off to be able to eat. And so, so it was it was very clear that Aus the Austrian people were not at all afraid of this in June and July. So that's why I thought it was basically over. And <clears throat> it's only in retrospect that that it looks like what happened is the fear mongering um, reached a a fever pitch because they were trying to get people into the state of mind that only the vaccine would save them. And so that's why this testing apparatus appears to have been implemented because it didn't really, it didn't really reflect that deaths were getting worse. It just, we kept having these case surges, you know, and there was a lot of, um, talk about whether these tests were even accurate. You know, it was very odd that people kept testing positive, even though they had no symptoms and people, um, we're taking these these case counts very seriously, even though it was completely arbitrary in a way what one local official would consider to be a positive test. So it was decided locally, you know, what what counted as a case. And so, but still, government officials were were basing all of their policies on these these case counts. You know, so if the cases rose to a certain level, then they would no longer allow people to move. <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to go outside. So this happened here. I'm in Australia right now. Parts of Australia were locked down for like two years. I mean, like Melbourne and Victoria, for example. Um, and this was all based on cases. You know, it wasn't deaths. And same thing happened in New Zealand. They locked down the metropolitan area of Auckland several times. And each time it was because they had you know, detected a handful of cases. They weren't even deaths. <laughs> they were cases. You know, they had tested people and found positive, um, positive results that pe these people had COVID. So they would put them in quarantine and it, it was really wild. People became completely hysterical about it. There's a it, lockdowns down here. I think nobody's even really answered about this yet. They kind of blamed it on their own governors of each state. But if you look at the number of domestic violence abuse cases that went up people that committed suicide while in lockdowns and they realized they did a horrible thing trying to lock people down and keep them in their homes and then they blamed it on you know the cdc blamed it on the governors blamed it on your mayors blamed it on things of that sort i mean i don't like my mayor specifically for one instance my grandma died in her house of lung cancer she was kind of leaving us before the pandemic and she wanted to she never left her home but when she passed away they counted it as a covid death and they published it in a magazine and my mom works on the radio and lost her shit because um, she was like, hell no. And then we finally got it taken off and it was like that wasn't a COVID death. But they were like everything, even with ventilators, they were doing as much as they possibly could to get funding because the hospitals got reimbursed or got money if it was a COVID death. And they banned monoclonal antibodies in Baltimore, Maryland. They banned it in the whole state, which I was like, hold on. That's been proven and has been used before and has been treatment for other things as well, too. Why would you stop a doctor from potentially using that? It does go into the emergency usage, but it just then became if you had any dissent from the vaccines, which I want to ask about this question to you why did it is it because it got in the political realm how are you a trumper if you don't want to wear a mask or if you want to you know i don't know if you just don't want to get a shot or something like that it's like well you're just deplorable okay so it just became it was this this seamless 
move from you know the Trump deplorables to the anti-vaxxer deplorables. So so there's a certain sector of society who had already decided that a big group of their fellow citizens are deplorable. You know, many of them, uh, most of them support Donald Trump. And so the the assumption was that you're a Trumper, you don't wear a mask, you know, you're you're an anti-vaxxer. Um, and it's true that Trump initially declined to wear a mask. So that was maybe that fed into it a little bit. You know, he did he opted not to wear a mask for some months. And so that fed into it. But it was really odd from my perspective because I had been in Austria where people are not Trumpers, you know, and they weren't wearing masks, you know, even when it, in places where it was required, like public transport. Um, so yeah, it had nothing to do with it, but it was just people were in this habit. I, you know, I really believe that Trump derangement syndrome is a true <laughs> psychological uh, problem, and it's persisted since 2016. And I think people just moved; they just transitioned from the anti-Trump, the "I hate everything Trump" thing to "I hate everyone who doesn't." get vaccinated and wear a mask and get in line and do what they're to told to do because they're obviously illiterate, inbred, ignorant, immoral, you know, just deplorable people. That was that was what happened. So people started to believe this. I mean, people called me like a Trump supporter, you know, <laughs> because I asked questions about the vaccine. I'm like, I don't even understand how this is supposed to be connected. You know, what, what does it have to do with any, anything? Because Trump now, even today, he still brags about having, you know, implemented this warp speed process for getting the vaccines. You know, he doesn't actually understand what the outcome of the vaccine um, uh, experiment was. He seems to think that it was a success story, but he doesn't know that the United States had the worst outcome of any other advanced nation despite having spent more money per GDP um, than, than any other country but Singapore. We had the worst outcome in both virus deaths and non-virus deaths, the excess mortality. Do you think that this pandemic could have been worse or the pandemic we got over could have been worse if more people would have got vaccinated? Like I'm not talking about just the, the seriousness of COVID. I'm talking about with the vaccination status on things. It was getting to a point where obviously people were creating fake vaccine cards and it was going to enter this digital ID and this type of face, like a bunch of things, requirements were going to start happening that you had to be vaccinated to start using businesses or being able to even leave your home. And I had to think that if enough people didn't descend, if there's a lot of people that really stuck with it, like we're going to get our shots and more people got vaccinated and it happened to be the large majority, then we wouldn't have. I mean, we wouldn't, it, everything wouldn't have just been lifted. Like, okay, if you don't want to get your shot, you're not, you don't have to get your shot. It would have been, they would have came to your house and tried to give you a shot or they would have. Well, no, they actually, they were going to do that. Biden yeah. had these like vaccine um, police who are going to come around and try to coax people who were resistant. And <laughs> doctors do shot, make house so. calls. Yeah, exactly. So they're going to do that. I mean, it was getting kind of scary and there were some countries where they had very, very strong um, punishments for people who declined to get the vaccine. In France, you couldn't use public transport, you couldn't work, you couldn't go to cafes, restaurants, bars, supermarkets, you couldn't do anything. I mean, the, the restrictions in France were really classist too, which is interesting because um, the French people have always had these class struggles. But you know, if you say you can't work, unless you get a vaccine and you can't take public transport unless you get a vaccine, you're targeting workers because rich people don't 
need public transport transportation and they don't need to work. So it was really awful and really ugly. There were protesters in France from the very beginning of the um, the restrictions that Emmanuel uh, Macron imposed. They, they were out in the streets for months and months and months and not dropping dead. And so that's that had to raise some questions in the in the minds of the compliant French people. Why are these people not all dying? You know, supposedly the situation is so dire that you know you're going to die if you don't get the vaccine. These people are not wearing masks. So they're out in the streets for months and months and they're still alive. <laughs> so this is what part, partly started to crack the narrative that people realized that oh, actually the wheelbarrows are never coming through the streets. Um, a lot of Americans never never knew a person who died of COVID. Do you think that it was this was a good test run? Do you think, I mean, if they went, like they're talking about down here doing lockdowns again, just temporarily. And they had talked about it before of doing it a seasonally type thing. But now that the, for the new variant, apparently that's out here, they're talking about this new variant, if there's a potential that- The lockdowns you know, some... don't work. I mean, if anyone's going to look at the data, the, locks, the, the lockdowns absolutely didn't work. I mean, you can look at Sweden. They never locked down. They did better than most of Europe. So the lockdowns don't work. I mean, that's actually been established. So when people are saying that now, they are in a state of sick, of complete ignorance with regard to the statistical data and well, people... also- People liked the unemployment factor. That was the most dangerous thing. I get like it didn't even really work. I waited months for that unemployment stuff to come through. I was basically going tearing up my bank account trying to survive. And then I finally got the money. But all these a lot of people stayed on unemployment for a long time until it just ended like a few months ago. And it was because they didn't want to work anymore. They got were getting paid more than they got sometimes in a week worth of just sitting at home and doing nothing. And I think that that's a great way to incentivize some people to go into the lockdowns and get other people convinced to go into lockdowns is by pushing that unemployment check and doing things of that sort. That's just from my own observation. I have friends that were getting more, making more money than I was making per week or whatever of actually going to my job by just sitting at home. And they're like, I love the pandemic. I'm fucking rich right now. And I'm like, all you're doing is ordering crap off Amazon. You're not even really paying your bills with it. Right. No, it definitely incentivized this kind of, um, you know, live on the dole lifestyle where people um, who could just sit at home and watch Netflix movies and order pizza, you know, they were they were doing fine. The other people, the other group that was doing fine um, were the government workers. So no matter what the government implemented as a policy preventing small businesses from opening and people from working and people from doing the normal things that they would normally do uh whatever the government did these government employees always had their full salary so they were never in any danger of losing the roof over their head of um you know becoming financially uh distraught and psychologically distraught in many cases um it's you know People could pe people in the gig economy did not have salaries, they didn't have pensions, and they didn't have homes. And a lot of them ended up being homeless. And so a lot of people were really wrecked by this. A lot of thousands, I, I think it's 3.5 million small businesses were closed forever. And um, there were some programs to help some people, but they, they only helped people who had already been in business for a while. So if you were starting up like a new small business, you're a small entrepreneur, you were crushed by the lockdowns. You couldn't get government, government help because you weren't a business for long enough. And you basically were just stuck in this position where you couldn't pay rent and you couldn't earn any money. So um, a lot of people were destroyed by the lockdowns. And it's really sad because the government supposedly exists in order to 
serve the people. And in fact, the government traumatized people constantly with this fear mongering and denigrated people and divided people and ultimately destroyed many people financially. Obviously, with the with the pandemic and the new measures and everything like that, I mean, out of everything, was there one thing that you did go with? Like Matt, like in the beginning, mass for me, I worked at a gym facility when they opened back up from lockdowns and mass. I was like, it honestly did much more to comfort people than it did probably to protect me from the actual virus. And I've done plenty of podcasts with people from Sweden who have done specific studies of how mass actually make you more sick because nobody's washing them or changing them out. But to me, it was like that was more of a social thing, like people really needed that to feel comfortable. And I even see it now. We're way past lockdowns, masks and all this stuff now. And I still see people in stores or driving in their car with it. There's just people in our society that will never not be like that, that always want the extra safety precautions. And if it doesn't bother me, but I saw people even getting upset that other people were wearing masks. I mean, did you have anything during the pandemic that you agreed with that you thought actually made sense when it came to like a certain measure that they said? I felt like people who were in the vulnerable categories had just cause for being worried about their safety. And and like you, I was okay with making them feel better, you know, with wearing a mask in their presence or whatever around senior citizens and things like that. So I, I whenever masks were required, I wore them, even though I thought it was a joke. Like I, I bought a set of these like six cloth masks and I really didn't believe in them. But I wore them when they were required. But often you could just evade the requirement really easily. When I took Delta Airlines back on um, November 16th from London and I flew to Philadelphia, a mask was required. My, my plane was nearly empty and I spent the whole flight like eating and drinking. And so I didn't wear a mask like the entire flight because I was eating and drinking. You were always allowed to take your mask off if you ate and you drank <laughs> nearly everywhere. But there I was... There was complete social distancing on my flight because there was hardly anyone on the flight. So I, it was like it was like uh, flying in first class with no fellow passengers. There was like hardly anyone on the plane. So, <clears throat> so to answer your question, I did you know comply with the requirements. You know there are places where you couldn't go in without a mask. I would wear it, but I didn't really believe in it. But I also at the same time felt that it was good to. Um, do what I could to make people less afraid, even though I felt that their their fear was often irrational. In some cases, I felt like was you know more understandable. They had been locked in their houses. All they did was watch TV. You know, of course they were terrified. You know, it, it, no one had ever done this in the history of humanity. Shut entire countries down, and so their logical thinking was it must be really bad. Why else would we have these really extreme measures imposed on us? And as I said before, it was this back and forth where the stronger um, the measures taken, the more people came to fear the virus and it just got worse and worse. And at some point people just, they just all, they lost all capacity for critical thought. It was really sad actually. I did you ever try to talk to the other side about things when it came to just rationally explaining some of your points? Of I view? did. And it was so difficult to have conversations with people. People would, would say like on Twitter, they, this one guy said, Oh, I'm not going to, I'm going to end our conversation here because I disagree with your views on vaccines. And I was like, what? <laughs> like who knew that I had a view on vaccine? You know, I was actually um, pointing out problems about, mutation and how the viruses, you know, uh, 
might escape the latest vaccine because it was actually built according to last year's uh, version, you know, so, and he got really angry, you know, as though I'm an anti-vaxxer. I'm an anti-vaxxer because I'm asking a question, you know, so, um, yeah, I, pe people became, there, there came a time when it was considered unacceptable for people to ask any questions and this whole propaganda line of stay in your own lane you know you don't know what you're talking about so people would say things like oh you're not you're not an epidemiologist you know when i was publishing these essays one by one over the course of the pandemic um you know they just became very angry because they felt like everyone should just salute uh anthony fauci and do whatever he said even though he was constantly contradicting himself people had bobbleheads of him in their house they did exactly and they wore masks that had him in fact the new cdc di director there are pictures of her who, wearing a mask that has anthony fauci <laughs> depicted on the mask <laughs> it's, it's wild i mean these people supposedly understand immunology and virology and yet they just they completely went along with this um deification of anthony fauci uh, who has really strong ties to the industry and he knew way back in 2020 that no one was ever able to come up with an effective vaccine against the common cold, for example. He knew that the flu shot that everyone markets so aggressively is rationally obligatory every, every fall. He knew that the flu shot was mediocre. You know, it, the best the flu shot has ever had efficacy wise is 48%. It's usually more like 19% in the ranges, you know? So, so he knew that the flu shot was was uh mediocre and it's unbelievable but in january 2023 he co-authored a paper in which he explains why these viruses these sorts of viruses coronaviruses including covid19 the common cold the seasonal flu cannot be controlled by vaccine technology he, he published a paper in which he explains this and yet you still see him out on the media circuit saying, oh, the new the new booster is almost ready. You know, you got to go, go get your shots. You're supposed to get a flu shot, the COVID shot, and RSV now, according to him. I mean, he is a vaccine salesman is what he is. Uh, I have to ask about the COVID lab leak theory um, that has now been accepted when they investigated it in like April. Nobody saw the headline of that because they didn't want to publish it and publicize it. But there's an episode on my show in specific, David O'Keefe episode like 600 something we talked about this it's still on youtube surprisingly i'm surprised they haven't taken it down but he's literally saying no this is how, he's like talking to me like i'm a child and i'm like hang on a second man you're saying it came from the market which means you're saying it came from the food that they were eating that sounds more racist than just suggesting that it came from the lab where they are known to do gain of function fucking research that's just common sense no and he was like, exactly no, no 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 it's it's hilarious actually if you think about it because if you just use normal uh procedures of criminal investigation you know like where did this thing come from you would say okay so it, you know either it came from the wuhan uh wet wet market or it came from the Wuhan laboratory. Well, let's compare the two cases. Okay, well, the Wuhan laboratory is a place where they happen to experiment on bad viruses doing gain of function <laughs> research. And and the and it just turns out that the live animal market is down the street from the <laughs> Wuhan Institute of Virology. You know, but it's you know possible that it emerged just because someone made bat soup it's possible but it just seems like an incredible coincidence so like if you're a detective and you're trying to you know solve the the mystery 
I mean, you would definitely not throw out the lab hypothesis just a priori. I mean, it, that doesn't even make sense. Why would you deny the possibility that it could have leaked from the lab? And that, and yet that's what happened because people were so desperate to um, to not be held responsible for millions of deaths. So Anthony Fauci, for example, brought back gain-of-function research. And if it was, in fact, Anthony Fauci's decision to bring back gain-of-function research, and in fact, COVID-19 was a result of that decision, then he is indirectly responsible for the deaths of millions of people. So he has a very strong personal um, motivation to prove that there's no way it came from gain-of-function research that that had been okayed by him. I mean, he just has a personal reason because he doesn't want to be responsible for the, for all of these deaths. Um, but people went along with it. I mean... I'll have to send you that guy's Twitter handle since he blocked me after I sent him the newest hearing that showed that there was evidence of it. Because he's a teacher. Like, he teaches in Canada. He's made, like, a really good film about these airplanes that went missing and everything like that. But to me, I was just like... No, but the, this is just... It's another example thinking. that people just lost their ability for critical thought. They just, they were so, um, they were so traumatized by this whole thing. And partly a lot of it was, I think, government induced trauma, you know, just the, the lockdowns and the measures kept getting worse and worse. And, um, you know, as you said, initially implementing measures that we had never seen in history before and so this made people this convinced people that it was so bad you know that they had to go along with anything and so they uh adopted this this attitude of faith toward anthony fauci so whatever anthony fauci said had to be true because he was the guy who was going to save us from the boogeyman do you believe that the government and put out disinformation on purpose to make the people that were anti-vax or just against the vaccine or just had questions? Because there's a lot of stuff like microchips and all that. I started going, somebody fed this out there or gave it to someone and someone ran with it because there's we're all getting lumped in that category. Like whenever you would say that. You yeah, know? exactly. It could be um, it could absolutely be that they that they created some of these narratives that sounded a little bit wacky and then they lumped everyone together. So the people who had, you know, actually respectable scientific questions about the mRNA technology or about the ability of anyone to produce a workable vaccine in, in only a few months rather than like the usual 12 year period or questions about how the experimental trials were conducted, all of, all of those perfectly respectable scientific questions about what went on were lumped together with the people who said, oh, there are, there are microchips in the vaccines and you're going to turn into a frog. And, you know, the, all these sort of wacky things that people were saying. Um, and so all of us were lumped together into the same category of, you know, untimension who were against science, you know, which is so crazy. Like I have a degree in chemistry and people, people with like degrees in history were like saying I was an anti-vaxxer. I was like, did you even understand anything about, do you know what mRNA is? You know, like really basic things. They, they actually didn't know anything about science at all. And yet they somehow got caught up in this whole virtue signaling awful spiral where you know, they became smarter and better and uh it's on our it's on Tinder now. If you go on Tinder, there's 
you have to put a vaccinated or unvaccinated. Oh my God, that's so hilarious. And I'm like, I, can I just choose not to disclose? And then even then, if you say that, people go, oh, you're unvaccinated then. You right, exactly. Like, yeah. Oh my God. Well, stay away from, from all those people. I mean, yeah, at, you know, at some point, yeah, it's, it's, I, my own view is it's no one's business. So I kind of take the, the Thomas Massey view, you know, he said this at some point, he said, my vaccination status is it's none of your business. <laughs> so, yeah. And he's absolutely right. I mean, it's a personal health choice. And the thing that's weird about this case is that the vaccines didn't, they weren't even vaccines in the traditional sense. They didn't stop transmission or infection. And yet, even when people found out that this was the case, and it was very obvious because people like President Biden, who had been multiply jabbed, kept getting COVID. COVID, you know, so even when it became obvious that it wasn't stopping infection and transmission, people still were pushing for mandates. It was really crazy. What do you think about the statistics? Because it's basically damn near impossible now to understand how many people actually had COVID and how many people actually died from COVID because the statistics are just all over the board. They manipulated so many graphs and things were that probably were the flu were counted as COVID stuff from either false positive on tests. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, it's a crying shame that the, the companies themselves destroyed the placebo class by giving them the injection. So ordinarily, when you test a product, you have to have a placebo class of people who are injected with either saline or some inert substance vis-a-vis -vis the, the virus to be combated. And they destroyed the placebo classes. So we will never know from the initial trial data um, whether the shots were effective at all. We will never be able to answer that question from that data. And so it's all, as you said, a big mess. It's all this data. Um, there were all these bad incentives for people to claim that deaths um, were COVID, even though sometimes it was they died of something else, but they tested positive maybe a month before, and then it was counted as a COVID death. And so because there, there were these perverse incentives for hospitals to claim that everyone who died died of COVID, this, this skewed the whole story. So it made it look like the pandemic was much worse than it was. You know, it turns out, as I mentioned earlier, thousands of seniors die of the flu every year. Well, during the COVID quote unquote pandemic, suddenly there were no more flu deaths. Suddenly people died only of COVID. So uh, yeah, as you said, you can't really tell. It's impossible to say. Um, but, we, but what we do know is that after the vaccine rollout, even in places where there was nearly universal uptake, such as Israel and Gibraltar, the deaths did not subside. They went up. So where People will you, be crunching the numbers forever, you know. Where where did you find solace of being able to talk about this stuff? I mean, obviously amongst your friends, you could probably talk about it, but even writing about it and trying to find groups of independent people like that would also think about it. Because I couldn't – I tried talking to people in the WHO. I did talk to people in the NIH. I talked to both sides of the argument there. I found that some were more lenient in certain areas. Like a lot of people did not agree with forcing someone to get a vaccination. They think that that was very invasive, but also I've talked to some that agreed, but I'm curious because Brownstone's where I've come across a lot of people now that have varying political views, but they all kind of agree that this pandemic and these controls are very authoritarian and we should be putting a stop to them. So where did you go for your, I guess, group that could you could be able to talk to about certain articles? You know, it was the people who were receptive to questions were few and far between, let me tell you. I mean, it was hard. Like I was was blocked and unfollowed and unfriended by people 
who I always believed to be, you know, rational, but they just became irrational during this period of history. And, you know, I hate to say it, but even family members in some cases, you know, they just, everyone was kind of out of sorts. And so um, I actually just found a lot of solace in logic. So I wrote these essays in a, in part attempting to figure out what was going on. So Scott Horton, um, director of the Libertarian Institute, contacted me in July, 2020, and I talk about this in the book and asked me to contribute actively to the site. And I was like, this would be a good idea for me personally to just work through what is going on and get down on paper what I'm observing. Cause I was observing very, you know, different countries, things going on in different countries. And the whole thing was just so bizarre. It was like this incredible kind of time warp that we all got sucked into for three years where um, nothing was what it used to be. And so I, writing these essays was actually very good for me because it allowed me to figure out what was wrong with, with what was going on. And even though I didn't know initially like the whole story, it ended up creating a sort of narrative arc where you, if you read through all my essays, you find that there is a story here. And it's almost like, the post-COVID world is a crime scene. <laughs> so I said, you have to use your skills of um, detection in order to, to determine exactly why things went the way they did. Um, a big part of the solution to the puzzle is found through following the money. So you look where the money went and look where the influence is. And you know, again, it's the captured um, agencies who are at fault. But I think there were a lot of people who were well-intentioned, but just genuinely ignorant of science. And so they felt from their perspective, they were like, well, I know what I don't know. You know, so so they they bought into this whole stay in your own lane, don't do your own research, because they were they felt a little bit intimidated by science. But for someone like me who has a background in science and who did research in chemistry, I was never intimidated by science. So I was happy to go in and read read papers about masks. Do, you know, do masks ac actually help in combating respiratory infections? And read papers about um, you know absolute risk reduction versus relative risk reduction and what these. Uh, vaccines were actually offering in terms of risk reduction to someone who was not already very old or sick. And so I read papers. There were papers from the very beginning, lots and lots of scientific papers. And writing essays and reading the papers was probably the best thing that I could have done, rather than just sitting and like being in a state of just confusion about why people were acting so crazy everywhere. Um, writing the, writing stuff down and and using reason and logic to figure out what was going on was very helpful to me. Do you think I mean, this, there were? Well, say I was going to ask. Do you think it was beneficial that uh, during the pandemic, obviously, it seems like a lot of people kind of woke up to what I would call the illusion of democracy that we realized what kind of system that we're in. It seems like a lot more people now are more skeptical about what the official line is from the government because of this pandemic. Either people got one shot, two shots, but I know plenty of people that got a shot or got two shots and they were not getting another one. No, exactly. I know a lot of people who complied throughout the duration of the official pandemic, which ended, um, I guess, on May 11th, 2023. That's when our state of emergency ended. And I, I have been encouraged by the number of people who are saying things like you just said, that, 
yeah, I'm done. I'm not getting any more boosters. I'm not wearing a mask. It's over. I'm not going back. You know, I learned what I learned and I, you know, I, that's not going to happen to me again. And I hope that it, I hope that that turns out to be the case. Unfortunately, there are a lot of bureaucrats in high places who don't fall into that category. And they instead have <clears throat> perverse incentives to prove that they were right all along. So they will continue to push this line according to which it would have been much worse if they had not imposed the lockdowns and if there had not been a lot of vaccine uptake and if there had not been people wearing masks all over the place. They will continue to insist this. And you see this. They do continue to insist this. So, so you said, for example, around you, some people are calling for lockdowns. You know, those people obviously didn't learn anything. And the, the scary part is that a lot of them occupy positions of power. And so you see that the WHO is still pushing for vaccine passports right now. I mean, they really want to get this through so that they can decree from their position that every uh, citizen of the world is required to get you know, the next shot next time a, a pandemic is declared. So that's very frightening. <clears throat> and that's why I think it's really important that we continue to talk about this. And that's why I published the collection of essays as a book because I don't want people to stop talking about this and I don't want them to forget it because the natural response is to want to move on. It was a really horrible episode of history. A lot of people's lives were destroyed. A lot of people were broken by this, you know, pe well-meaning, hardworking people were really broken by this um, because it, the governments made it impossible for them to survive in any uh, reasonable way. So so I think we have to keep talking about it. And as uh, people are calling for boosters, we need to continue to assess the data, look at the data and, and just explain to people, you know, um, how they did really sneaky things like change the definitions of pandemic and vaccine <clears throat> so that they're much weaker than they used to be. So when everyone thought that they were facing the Black Plague, that was a complete misrepresentation of the need of the um level of danger you know 99.5 percent of people survived this virus so it was never anything like the apocalyptic depictions that you see in the movies of pandemics nothing like that if you've watched any of those movies it's always like you know if you get it you're gonna die it was exactly the opposite it was like you know, if you get it, there's like a 99% chance that you're going to live. You know, so, but people, <clears throat> people had this image in their mind and it really frightened them. So hopefully enough people will stand up against things like the call for the vaccine passports that it won't, that, you know, we won't succumb to totalitarianism. But honestly, I feel like we dodged a bullet. I feel like we're lucky that the people who did this were incompetent because, because there were so many people who were all in. They were so ready to accept any of this. You know, yeah, the government has a right to tell you what to put into your body. I mean, that's a complete departure from anything we've seen in history. Well, Laurie, I appreciate the time you gave me to do my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links, your Twitter, Amazon for your books? Sure. I mean, all my books are available at Amazon and there's a book page at the Libertarian Institute. Um, there's also, if you want to read all of my essays, I write a lot of them on war also. Um, there you can go and search L. Calhoun at Libertarian Institute and there's a whole list of essays there. I also have a blog, which is the Drone Age, um, wordpress.org. 
And um, my Twitter is L'Oreal Calhoun. Uh, I, I have a, you know, I don't have that much luck with Twitter. I mean, I, I seem to be stuck in, I'm in some sort of category where my tweets are only shown to like 20 people. So I see some of them. You see some of them. Okay, good. So you're one of the lucky 22. So, <laughs> so um, but uh, yeah, I'm not like a huge social media person, but I do have a Twitter account and I have a Facebook account. Also, Lori L. Calhoun. And I'll link all those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.